Okay, well, I have some 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 actual science. <laughs> actual science. Beat peanuts. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, my my science news is about the first UK children are born using DNA from three parents. Ta-da. Also a NS1. catchy title. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> actually, an N six. Um, but mm. <laughs> welcome everybody to the 56th episode of the Struggling Scientist podcast. We are a podcast by scientists, for scientists, anybody science adjacent, and perhaps even hobbyists. My name is Susanna, and I'm here with my co-host, Jaron. Hi. Today, we have another science news episode, and we found some really cool science news again to talk with you guys about. Um, so let's start. Okay, well, it's uh, been a couple of weeks, months. Years. <laughs> since we did the last science news episode. And since then, there has been some really cool new science in the news that we cannot wait to talk about. So let's dive just right into it and start with the first one. Jaron. Yeah, so the first thing that we're going to talk about is uh, an article that was published about, well, the actual paper is in NeuroImage, I believe the journal is called. Mm-hmm. And the article that's uh, referencing that paper is called Your Brain Wires Itself to Match Your Native Language. And so what they did in the study is actually to you to look at people who speak German and people who speak Arabic and compare these sort of monolingual adults against each other with uh, MRI scans. Mm-hmm. And they looked at the brains of 100 people, I suppose, give or take 50-50 here per, per German and Arabic. And what they found was, uh, after analyzing the, the, the volunteers, that people who speak only German had denser sort of white matter connections in the left hemisphere of their brain, while Arabic had dense connections that sort of bridged both hemispheres, sort of indicating network differences between okay. the, at least these two languages. Intense. Yeah. But the jury is still out as, as to what exactly this means. Is this exclusive to just language or other things might also be different? Uh, is it maybe because Arabic is also a very different language in terms of like you also read from right to left, very different from German, obviously. And so, yeah, the jury is still out on what exactly all of this means. But this is one of the first indications of like language seems to shape how your brain works. Okay. But yeah, lots of things to still figure out. And uh, one of the obvious ones being that if you actually look at different languages, sort of, sort of like Chinese or Japanese or where you also have different uh, intonations and stuff like that, that really matter for how you, if whether you're saying dog or something completely different like fridge. Yeah, so I think that's a very interesting that your native language can sort of shape how, how your brain ends up working as an adult. Okay, yeah. that's pretty cool. Yes. Well, the next one is uh, actually... I chose it specifically for you, Jaron. Oh. Because your birthday is this week, the 16th of May. Is this an aging study? No, 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 no. (laughs) It's actually about your zodiac sign. Oh, now I'm worried. (laughs) So, zodiac signs have a long history, right? Over 2000 years ago, the Babylonians first mapped out the constellations and then the Greeks later built on that work to create the zodiac we have today. Mm-hmm. And the whole principle is that uh, on the dark side of the planet, whichever zodiac sign you see at that moment is the zodiac sign you, you are. So you basically have a line from the sun, the earth, and then the constellation. And that's in a straight line because that's the part that you see from the dark side of the earth. Mm-hmm. However, what 
they didn't take into account was that the Earth tilts on its axis. And it does that every 26,000 years. And that means that you see a different zodiac sign at that moment. It also means that our northern star isn't always going to be our northern star. In 12,000 years, a different star will be our northern star. I feel like we have other issues uh, before. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, okay, yeah, yes, sure, yes. that's something But to the about. relevant thing for now is that that means that uh, you are not actually born in the constellation that you think you are okay. because they are shifted a little bit mm -hmm. so you are then not a taurus but, but a gemini an Ar aries oh is, is that actually before taurus yeah no right that that actually is before taurus <laughs> watching anime has helped me so apparently it's it's shifted about a week okay and i i just thought that this was vital information for your life to know now now nothing makes sense anymore <laughs> <laughs> I went from one land-dwelling animal that like can tackle something to another land-dwelling animal that can tackle something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's science. I cannot help. Did you shift? <laughs> uh, oh, I will have to look that up. Yeah, because if, if the talk is about Taurus and everything's shifted one week, I would imagine other things have also shifted, but you know. This one specifically used Taurus because it's a very recent... Um, mm. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. So someone got funding. <laughs> yeah, no, it's actually it's actually an astronomer who <laughs> talks about it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, impactful research, I guess. I mean, I'm sure this this actually will mess up a lot of people's lives currently. Maybe we're all about that. Uh, yes. Yeah, astrology life. So the next science news worthy thing is uh, called how some beetles drink water using their butts. Oh my god. Yeah. Research. What do you always have with bots? Um look, it it's a catchy title. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So the the study focused on these uh, types of beetles called the red flower beetles and it was I guess already known that they somehow like after they poop, they they can suck up water back somehow from that and sort of keep surviving even in droughts and stuff like that. Lovely. Yes. Uh, these beetles are also uh, pest, pests, effectively. They, they can ruin crops and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I guess flower, maybe. I, I mean, it's yeah, weird. Flower yeah, flower beetles. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, yeah. And, and in the article, they mentioned that this amazing mechanism could one day be exploited to make beetle-specific pesticides that could protect crops while safeguarding bees and other insects. Very specific. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so basically these beetles are able to take up water back from either their poop or other poop types of poops as well. It's unclear from to, for me exactly which poop. <laughs> <laughs> but poop, poop is the important thing. Okay. <laughs> this wasn't penis, by the way. It's a... <laughs> yes. So oh, they're able to penis. take up yes. yeah, take up water and sort of protect themselves from, from dying of uh, lack of water. Uh, in that way and it was sort of known that they can do this and this this article really looked into which gene or genes specifically were responsible for this trait of these beetles to do that and yeah it turned because out to we be really need to know well i mean if if one day they actually want to do what they say in the article and exploit it in some way to make a pesticide specific to to these beetles then then yeah, yeah. but uh 
Yeah, so it turned out to be this one specific gene called NHA1, I believe it's uh, called. NHA1, yeah. Uh, and yeah, that is important for those cells in, in the gut to, to have that specific phenotype of being able to, to... So is the idea then to target those genes or to target their poop and add pesticides to the poop? I would think pesticides to the poop. Yeah, I would but think... how would you do that then? I don't know. I really don't know. <laughs> this is sort of the thing is like when I looked at the actual article, it's like lots of like uh, gene gene expression stuff. And I'm like, okay, but I still don't see like how this would be important for protecting against pesticides necessarily from this paper. But oh, that's beside it the point. It is a catchy title. Yes. I mean, yeah, they, they butt stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want this to be, become a common occurrence, okay? okay? Look, at least one science news article <laughs> needs to be about butt stuff basically every two months. Oh, I think we need to move on. <laughs> yes, that was basically the entire story. We are very excited to be able to introduce you to our new sponsor, Jenny AI. Not only does Jenny make our podcast possible, it also makes our life as scientists so much easier. Jenny is an all-in-one writing assistant that has everything that we have been missing in other AI tools. Yes, first off, unlike other AI tools, it actually finds accurate information in papers and cites its sources. It does not make things up and only uses real verified information that you can then also check the source of. Second, it's a writing assistant trained for academic papers and helps you write your paper by suggesting the next sentence or the end of your sentence. Or, if you get really stuck, you can ask it to write an entire paragraph, completely removing the writer's block I so often struggle with when I don't know the right words to make my point. It helped me write an introduction to a paper I've been struggling with in half an hour. It even suggests which papers to cite. You can add your own library or search the entire internet for papers, just type the add symbol to easily add a reference and it gets automatically added to the reference list. And the last thing we absolutely love is that it has an AI chatbot that can see your document and give feedback on how to improve your manuscript. Or you can ask it questions, such as what are the potential therapeutic benefits of dot dot dot, and it will search through the papers for you for the answer. I can only say that my stress level has gone down significantly since I started using Jenny. Check out the free version now at thestrugglingscientist.com slash Jenny. And if you love it, use the code SCIENCE20 for a 20% discount. Okay, well, I have some... some, some Actual science. <laughs> Actual science. <laughs> Beat peanuts. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my, my science news is about the first UK children are born using DNA from three parents. Ta-da. Also a NS1. catchy title. <laughs> no, 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 actually an NS6. Um, but mm. <laughs> so it it sounds like a very catchy title, right? But it is, of course, a little bit more serious than you would think. So they have a mother that has mitochondrial disease. Mm-hmm. And the point with mitochondria is that you get them 100% from your mother because they have their own DNA and they are carried in the egg cell. Uh, so that if these, these these women cannot have children because they carry like a disease that they will give to their children then. Mm-hmm. And there's no way to add mitochondria of the of the male or whatever. So what they did is then take a donor egg cell, remove the genetic material and only keep the outside and then add the genetic material of the already fused female male cell, I think, mm. or the fuse afterwards, one of the two. 
but that means that you then have just the, the male female parents DNA, nuclear DNA, but you get the, the mitochondria DNA from the donor cell. Mm. So then, yes, you have three DNA kinds in there, but the nuclear DNA is still 100% like your mom and dad. Mm. Um, and that seems to be relatively efficient. Out of the six, five seem to be uh, working quite well. But there's always the risk that with transplanting the nuclear the nucleus basically into the new cell, you also take along some of the mitochondria, mm -hmm. and some uh, mutations actually cause the fact that mitochondria replicate way better than the normal type. Mm -hmm. So in one of the children that were born, they were actually uh, already sixty percent the disease uh, state of mitochondria mm -hmm. back. Yeah. While during the original transplant, it was only 1%, just showing how much mm. greater okay. the, the replication was of these, these diseased, yeah. mutated mitochondria. So in that sense, it, uh, with that child, it didn't really work. Mm -hmm. um, and they are trying to assess now um, in these other children if they have any mutated DNA mitochondria left or if it was just the type of mutation that caused mm -hmm. this the rapid uh, replication of the mutated DNA and to see how efficient this actually is. Yeah. Uh, and it is apparently a thing that is not super new. It was new to the UK where it's been now also approved to mm -hmm. be able to do this. And uh, it's called MRT. Um, and I mean, there are they are still working on it and in a lot of countries it's still not allowed and in some other countries it is not regulated yet so yeah it is not super new but it is new to the uk and it's also not allowed yet in the us and a lot of other countries okay yeah no that it is uh approved in australia and it has been conducted in greece and ukraine mm. to treat infertility yeah so Still need some work, it sounds like, though. Well, it, it doesn't. So I think it depends a bit on what type of mitochondria uh, mutation mm. you have. Most likely, yeah. And they need to figure out if they, they have ways to test already mm -hmm. how, how much um, mutated mitochondrial DNA gets transplanted into the, the donor cell with the nucleus and see if they can screen for that. So it's still a work in progress, mm -hmm. but it is giving children to these people who otherwise could not have that from their own DNA. They would have to use a, a complete donor mm -hmm. XL, basically. Yeah. Which, yeah. No, sounds uh, good, but indeed just requires a bit more uh, fine-tuning. And, yes, you know. and that's of course always difficult when you're actually working with humans. Yes. Okay, what is the next one, Jaron? Yeah, so the next article that we're going to be talking about is invasive yellow crazy ants create male chimeras to reproduce. Okay. So what you, I guess, need to know about this is that yellow crazy ants are a, an extremely invasive species. Mm -hmm. And it was already known that ants, well, ants are, have a weird reproduction system uh, to begin with, so... The queens are typically the ones that can reproduce, while males are ten, ten, worker males tend to be sort of produced from the unfertilized egg, at least in most lots of ants. But these yellow crazy ants are quite interesting because they have a chimera 
way of reproducing. So you, they create ants that have uh, multiple sets of, of chromosomes or very different sets of chromosomes uh, and also in different organs. So one, like, for example, their, I don't know what you call that, uh, ant butt. <laughs> Could, ha- could have a- <laughs> the uh, there are very Damn few <laughs> there are very few ant organs to name here <laughs> their, their head the butt and body <laughs> legs yeah okay yeah so for example their butt can have like uh, the the chromos let's say chromosome r for for the royalty lineage uh, as we'll soon discuss and their head could for example have the the worker lineage of chromosomes and maybe their body has a combination of are NW chromosomes, so they, they they effectively are chimeras because they're, they're they don't have the same genetic material in every part of their body. Okay. So and how does a how does a female then exist? Yes. Yeah, so the females are interesting because they can only exist if you have uh, two uh, yeah pairs of the R uh, chromosome sort of re- uh, fused together in an egg uh, okay. from sperm and egg essentially. So you need the two the lineages to be the of the royal lineage for both the male and the female, and then that can make a yeah female queen. Okay. That so is if fertile. you get yeah. DNA with two R's, you get the the queen. Yes. If you get an R and an W, you get the worker. A worker. Yes. And how do you get a male that is reproductive? Uh, the the R and the W actually need to fuse. Okay. No, sorry, that's wrong. If they if they fuse, then they they become workers. Then they are mm-hmm. sterile. If they don't fuse and just divide, then you get the chimera, and they can. These are still um, reproductive. Reproductive, yes. And yeah. they're they can then give on either the R or the In, W. Yes. Making the next generation happen. Yes, and this seems like a very roundabout way, and it's also the first time that uh, researchers have ever found a species that really requires chimerism to reproduce. So, yeah, it's, uh, I thought it was an interesting article. It's a little bit confusing to, to double-check everything. To like, okay, what exactly leads to what? But, yes, uh, it, it sounds not like the most optimal way, but, I mean, it's, it's nature. So Nature. <laughs> they try everything, you know? Yes. <laughs> so that was that article. What, what okay. do you have for us? I have new understanding of wavy wo- wo- wounds. <laughs> of wavy wounds may make for faster post-op healing. So apparently, yes. if you have a straight line wound, mm-hmm. it heals slower than when you have a wavy wound. And they knew that, and now they wanted to know why. It's like a wavy wound, like if you have like a cut from like, I don't know, a knife or something? Or what, what is No, it? that's also more straight. Okay. I think, I'm not quite sure when you would really get a wavy wound. Scratched by like one of those cheese graters? <laughs> <laughs> In this case, they tested it with like uh, a cell layer, mm-hmm. as they often do wound healing assays. Uh-huh. And then they made either, either a straight line or really like a wavy line. Mm. And uh, they wanted to investigate why it is so that a straight lined wound heals less fast than a wavy wound. Okay. So I expected a lot of fancy stuff to come up now. I'm worried now, yeah. <laughs> Not really. What is important to know is that these cells... Uh, around the wound, mm-hmm. they are not static. They move around, and they 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 go on their merry way, and they interact with their other cells. And when you have a straight-lined wound, uh, the cells sort of stra- tend to stay away from it. While if you have a wavy wound, you go- get sort of these bumps, mm-hmm. and then when cells start moving, 
they sort of get pushed in and out of these bumps and are way more likely to be pushed into the wound area and actually bridge to the other side of the wound. Mm. And that's it. Okay. <laughs> I expected there to be chemicals released and genes expressed. No. No. Well, no. I mean, clear. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it actually um, heals five times faster. Okay. Which is quite a bit. So, hypothetically, if you were to have a wavy wound and if someone were to then try to create a straight line wound out of make a bigger, straighter line wound <laughs> no, over it. don't. <laughs> but it might be uh, an interesting thing to, when doing surgery, to not actually do the straight lines mm. um, wound. Yeah. Which... Yeah, I, I mean, five I times would... faster is big yeah, difference. Yeah, it is a very tiny wave mm -hmm. here and i'm not sure if you can do that with a scalpel and then also suture it very very nicely mm -hmm. uh, but of course quicker wound healing is always great because then you get also less complications like infections yes for sure but yeah zigzag that's the the gonna be the out outro of this episode <laughs> zigzag <laughs> zigzag which one is the next one, Jaron? Yes. So the next article that we're going to be discussing is this elephant peels bananas, but only slightly ripe ones. Specific. Yes. So this was published. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah? Before we start. Mm -hmm. Define slightly ripe. So kind of kind of going on brownish. Okay. There's right. a video if you want to see it. <laughs> yes, they filmed the elephant doing we it. We are an audio only podcast. Um, it's fine. Okay. The day we finally go fully on YouTube there. I don't know if we're allowed to show the, the 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 footage of the elephant eating the banana. Not sure, not sure. But that's a future us problem. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, the entire paper is about how they found an elephant that is able to to peel a banana okay. and eat it. And she she because it's a it's a she it's of called course. Pang Pa uh, does it quite fast. They actually timed it and compared it to a, like a there's footage. Of her eating the, uh, opening up, uh, peeling the banana and eating it, and versus a human opening up a banana and eating it. Uh, she does it faster. Okay. Uh, and, but, but, she's very picky, so obviously with the, only the ripe bananas. Uh, but also she will not do, do it if she's surrounded by other elephants. This was an entire paper, by the way. This is also in the paper. <laughs> <laughs> so she would only do it if it's ripe bananas and not, if she's alone in like, her her space otherwise it's just awkward yeah exactly you know why why show them that i can do this trick if if i can just keep the bananas to myself <laughs> uh and yeah and the entire thing sort of concludes with like that's this is why it's important to study individual animals as well because they can they can have special skills yeah yeah that's such and then a, you can write a paper about it yeah about i mean one elephant with a skill current biology i thought that had like a pretty decent impact factor mm. so yeah but I mean, elephants are apparently learning stuff, so there's that. Yes. I get, but they're hiding it from everyone around them. <laughs> uh, the one I have yes. is actually about a world record oh. made by uh, a university professor uh, from Florida. Um, and he's called Professor Dituri. And he also goes by the moniker Dr. Deepsea. He because, sounds like a spider, future Spider-Man villain. <laughs> <laughs> because he is already, uh, for 74 days, now underwater in like a, a tank, basically. 
how underwater are we talking? Uh, a 30 foot deep lagoon in Key Largo, Florida. Oh. And he broke the record now and he's planning on staying there 100 days. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and he is trying to find out what the water pressure does to your body while you're there. Because he doesn't have a tank that is built against water pressure. So his entire body is uh, always feeling this pressure. And he's trying to figure out uh, what that does to his body. And he is researching that and also giving classes from down there. Um, and he's really planning on staying in 100 days. And he's also the first person who attempts this alone. Because it is a world record that has been set before at 73 days, 2 hours and 34 minutes. Uh, by two Tennessee professors, <laughs> but they did it together uh, at the same location, actually. But they did it together to not go absolutely crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is alone, so he has a very tight schedule of like workout and teaching. And um, I guess that helps that he can do online teaching. So wait, he's under thirty foot of this this water in yeah. a, in a in a submarine, basically. That is not yeah. Uh, okay. I... <laughs> Yeah, okay. And he eats food from a microwave. So apparently he has a microwave food. And I guess food gets delivered to him? Uh, Otherwise, yeah, he needs to have brought like, what, 100 days, so a bit over three months worth of food in one go. That's microwavable. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. And the whole thing of why he's doing it is so that we can one day live in the oceans and uh, really start treating them well. Yes. This is, I feel like this is just a passion project from these professors, apparently. It's just <laughs> like, we're in the marine, marine biology or whatever space of like this. Let's just go do this. <laughs> Might as well set a world record while we're at it. Yes. No, but cool. Yeah. So he's planning on staying there quite a bit longer. And uh, we, we all root for him, of course. I wonder if he has, he doesn't have to pay taxes if he's like living in the water. <laughs> now I'm wondering about the practical implications of this. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, that was already the last one of our episode today. A lot of fun science again, and we hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, suggestions, papers we really need to read, or if you just want to talk to us, <laughs> you can reach out to us via the strugglingscientist.com. Um, and you can also find us on social media. Jaron, which one are those again? Yeah, so uh, you can reach out to us also on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, maybe Mastodon and Pinterest. Oh, yes. and YouTube. Yes, don't forget YouTube. Okay, well, we hope to see you all next time. Bye. Bye.